Hi, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode of our interview series. Uh, how do you make 2021 count for the business you love? Today with us, we have an interesting guest that uh, this year made a big jump into opening up uh, her own business. She developed and uh, brought to, ma to market a premium hair care brand. And today we will know all about it, about the journey, about how it became a reality, how it formed, and all the nitty-gritty interesting stuff about it. I would like to welcome Lynn Power. Lynn, welcome to this. Episode. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Alan, and Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, Merry Christmas. Uh, I hope everybody, every listener here had a great and wonderful start to the holidays despite everything else that is happening in the environment and the economy and today we would love to share with you uh, everything we can to enable you and empower you in 2021 to also potentially give a start to something that you've been planning for a long time so no further ado uh, let's jump in and get to know more about Lynn uh, Lynn, tell us a little bit about your background and where you come from. Sure. So I'm actually from the Midwest. Um, I, I am a New Yorker now because I lived in New York for 25 years, which, you know, New Yorkers say you have to be there a really long time to qualify to actually call yourself a New Yorker. But I think 25 years makes me a New Yorker. Um, and I actually went to school for, you know, really liberal arts. Um, I wanted to go in the FBI when I graduated college. So I had Seriously? a double mate. Yeah. Oh. Very different than advertising, that's for sure. Um, but I had, well, actually not that different because I do think it's problem solving and using creativity to figure things out, which is kind of advertising too. So maybe it is the right brain, left brain combination that appealed to me. But anyway, um, so yeah, I wanted to do that. And I was a double major of criminal justice and English. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated, um, they weren't hiring. So <laughs> there was a hiring freeze. It was a long time ago. So I was basically living at my parents' house and thinking, oh boy, you know, this is not going to be fun to hang out here without a job. So I started looking for alternatives and I met a recruiter who liked me because I could type really fast, which I still can type really fast. And I always, you know, tell my children that that's a really good skill to have. Um, so she ended up basically making me go on an interview, not making me, but basically telling me you are going to go on this interview and get this job at an ad agency. And I was like, an ad agency, what did they do? You know, I, I really had no idea. She sent me on the interview. It was for a receptionist and they hired me on the spot. I think they were desperate. It was like any breathing human will do. <laughs> so I took the job. I started the next day and I loved it. I love the environment. Um, you know, I, I, I do encourage people, you know, there's no, there's no shame in starting in the mailroom, as a receptionist, as a secretary, that kind of thing, because you really get to observe all the different roles and the players around you and the culture and soak it all in and figure out what you like. And I was able to kind of work my way up uh, in account management at that first job. 
Um, I was on the Pizza Hut account. Um, and from there I left, I went to another agency and then I moved to New York. And then I've been in advertising for, you know, 30 years. Um, I, my last job in advertising was um, the CEO of J. Walter Thompson, New York. And um, I left that job in 2018. Um, I had started a brand consultancy and I was helping startups figure out their brand positioning, their brand voice, that kind of thing which was really fulfilling for me because a lot of my clients in advertising were very, very large corporate clients who, you know, you just, it's very hard to move the needle on anything, very hard to make an impact and to see your work really change things. Mm. But with startups, I was working directly with founders. Um, you know, we would have a conversation and, you know, two days later, I'd see their website updated. You know? So it, it, it was much more gratifying for me. And then I met my hair care partner, James, um, in 2018. And that was through my husband, actually. They had been working together and James had basically confided in my husband that he'd been working on these formulations for 10 years and kind of needed some help figuring out what to do next. And Bill had said to him, well, you know, I don't know beauty, but Lynn does. I've done a lot in my career. Um, and so he connected the two of us and we just got on like a house on fire. So <laughs> that basically led to us launching the business. Um, it took us about, I would say, 18 months to get the branding, the packaging, tweak the formulations, do consumer testing, you know, get all the, you know, brand story figured out all the pieces of the puzzle. And then we launched months. about 18 months. Wow. Um, you know, the, the hardest part was there's a lot of tricky bits to sourcing packaging. Um, and we ended up having a source from like five different places. And uh, we had gotten our packaging for our shampoo and conditioner actually from Amsterdam. It was the only place in the world we could find that specific packaging. And we had to order a huge quantity because that's what's so special about it. It was just the way our designer created the products. It was actually a stock package, but it's a stock package that's very, very rarely used, <laughs> clearly <laughs> hard to find. Um, so it looks custom. So the benefit of using stock packaging is you get a much better cost than if you have to make, you know, your own custom packaging. So we found the packaging, it was in Amsterdam and we had to buy a huge quantity because it was, you know, they, the, the minimum sometimes are, are, mm -hmm. are outrageous. And we got a call literally from the packaging company where they said, um, we missed the boat. And I'm like, you missed the boat. They literally, the shipment missed the boat. So the next shipment was like a month later, wow. you know, things like that, where you just, you just can't anticipate that happening, but inevitably there, there are things like that, that will happen along the way. And you just have to kind of like, you know, take a deep breath, do your yoga and, uh, and just roll with the punches. Right. Mm -hmm. In that process of um, your journey of those 30 years in advertising, then building your brand and everything else, where do you find yourself in terms of your productivity time? Are you more productive in the night or in the mornings? Um, I'm not, you know, it's funny because it's changed, actually. I used to be a morning person and then I wasn't a morning person and then I kind of was again. I think part of it um, had to do with 
my children's ages. Mm. Now I'm not a morning person again. Um, I have teenagers, they sleep till noon. (laughs) So um, I think now I kind of try to get up and I always try to start my day with, with yoga these days, uh, which just kind of helps me focus. And then I find I just crank all through the afternoon. Um, and then I, I tend to work kind of in and after and around dinner, um, up until, you know, we decide, okay, enough work. Now we have to watch Vikings or something else. And, you know, all but right. yeah. Uh, do you, uh, in, in the process, right, in uh, building up the business, would you say that uh, this is something that you're super passionate about? Or would you direct your passion in uh, like the level of passionate uh, being, right? Uh, do you, would you say that business is your core passion in life? Or is there something additionally to business that you're passionate about? I would say my passion and why I love my career for so long was really about building brands and, you know, using creativity to solve business problems. Um, That was really enjoyable for me for a really long time. And I think when it started to be less enjoyable because I was in management and I was running agencies and I was dealing with, you know, human resources and finance and other things, I kind of had that realization that I'm not doing what I love anymore. Um, cause I had gotten away from that aspect of the business and people sometimes think when you get more senior, you know, it just gets better and you get to do, you know, even more cool things, but it's not usually the case. Your job changes quite dramatically. <laughs> Ooh, this is beautiful. Um, yeah. I touched upon it yesterday in the episode. I would love to touch it upon with you. Um, yeah. the idea that um, basically when a solopreneur starts a business, they start off as uh, being self-employed in many cases. They outsource stuff, then they potentially do a first hire, maybe a small team, but then the business starts growing and they end up leading that company and the amount of tasks is ever growing. And then they find themselves as a founder in the CEO position, yet they're potentially not ready at all. And uh, there is like this decision, as you said, you need to understand of what is, what are you truly passionate about? And as you said, right, you, you love building brands, you love creativity, you mm-hmm. love the, the creative process. But when you come to the C-suite, that's, that's gone. You, you don't have the time to be in the trenches actually doing what you love. Can you share more about uh, how does the, um, how did the rep- responsibilities change when you actually get to the level of having to lead a business as a CEO? Yeah. And what can what should entrepreneurs understand about the C-suite um, in the process of actually building a strategy for business growth and potentially not being the the CEO or the COO of the company? Yeah, well, I think it's different in terms of the size of the company that has a lot to do with it. You know, I was running another agency that was about 200, 225 people. And when I was doing that, it was really different because I was able to still work on business because I've always characterized myself as a player coach. I'm not somebody who just directs everybody else and lets them do it. I like to get in there and do it too, and kind of lead by example in that way. 
And so when I was at that job, it was great because um, I had a couple businesses that I was really still really involved with. So I still got to get my fix, if you know what I mean, like my creative fix. Um, but when I went to a bigger agency, and this is, I think, a mistake that people make sometimes, they think bigger is better. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? They think that like their career career trajectory involves bigger, bigger, bigger but it's very different. And so when I went to J. Walter Thompson, that is a huge agency. It's one of the largest agencies in the world. I was running their headquarter office, which was, you know, again, very large. Um, and the job was very bureaucratic. And what I mean by that was it's part of a holding company, WPP. I was dealing with finance constantly because I had to get approval for every little thing I wanted to do. I had to deal with legal. We were, we had a very public me too lawsuit that, that I kind of had to sort of work our way through. And then, um, you know, the HR issues and those kinds of things were just constant when you have so many people that work in that company, it's just, those issues become more forefront. So I was finding all of my time was pretty much doing those things. And I didn't have any time to work on clients, really. Um, I had a couple that I was sort of dabbling with, but it's not the same as really, you know, getting in there and, and really solving some of the issues and helping them. So that was a big difference for me. Um, I do think, though, now, because I am, I am a co-founder and CEO now, I think the way to architect your life or your team as a, as a entrepreneur is to really understand the things that you like to do and the things that you don't like to do and figure out how to build your team around that. So um, I always tell people when they are thinking about bringing in a co-founder to try to find somebody who's not like you, because if you're just going to clone yourself you're not really building out complementary skill sets and you're not moving the business forward. So in my case, I'm super lucky because my business partner, James, I mean, one of the reasons he went to Bill was he was like, I don't know how to go to market. I don't know how to build a brand. I don't know how to do any of that. And obviously that's what I do. But what he does brilliantly is he makes the formulations absolutely like unbelievable. And he's not a chemist. But he, and he's not a hairstylist, by the way, either, but he just is extremely curious and knowledgeable and does a ton of homework. And that's why it took him so long to make our original formulas, because he just kept at it and wasn't satisfied and wanted different things and better things and kept looking. And, and I think that um, sort of intuition that he has, I would call it is really special and something that I could never do as much as I, I could go to school and learn all the chemistry, you know, tricks, but I still couldn't do what he does. So that makes the relationship really fulfilling because we both have our lanes. And of course we collaborate on just about everything, but what I do now is now I know I don't like to do the finance stuff. <laughs> I know that about myself. I, I don't like to do the analytical stuff. Um, I, I like to look at the results of it, but I don't like to actually create spreadsheets and make it. So now I have people on my team that do that. Um, and I'm very happy to outsource that kind of work. Um, so I think it's a little bit about self-awareness 
and really understanding what you want to do and what you're good at and the stuff that you don't want to do. And also giving yourself a break because a lot of female entrepreneurs that I know think that they have to master all the different aspects of the job before they can bring somebody else in. It's almost like they, they're, they're nervous about somebody else knowing more than they do. And I just think that's ridiculous really, because there's no way to master everything about the job these days. I mean, just looking at digital marketing alone is like a rabbit hole you could go down for years. So I think a healthier way to go at it is to just recognize you don't need to know everything. You need to know a little bit about everything enough to be dangerous. And then you need to bring in the right people who can do that work for you. Um, So I'm not saying that you don't need to understand what they're doing and you know, be able to weigh in, but you do need to do that, but you don't need to actually get into all the details of what that job is. It's and like you, you need to get people who are wiser and them teach you how to do it. Yes. And then you will start knowing those things, right? So yeah, exactly. Or, or not. I mean, frankly, like I have no desire to understand QuickBooks. <laughs> I mean, I, if I had to learn it because you know, I was in a position suddenly. In, in what way? Oh, what's QuickBooks? Just like the accounting software. Ah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't really have any desire to learn it. So um, there's certain things I think it's perfectly fine for you just to say, you know what, I am outsourcing this completely and I don't need to learn it and I don't need to spend any time on it. And then there are other things to your point where you're going to bring somebody in. Like this is where digital marketing for me it's changing so rapidly all around us all the time that as much as I'm a marketing person and have been, you're always playing catch up because there's always a new algorithm and there's always a new something. Um, And so getting people that are a little bit more um, focused on that, who can spend the time understanding and digging deep. And then I learn from them because I do want to understand that. Um, that's an area where I feel like I'm always a student. Mm. So I don't do the work, but I'm constantly learning and questioning and, you know, just finding out more and more about it all the time because we figure out what works, what doesn't work. We compare notes with other founders, you know, it's a process. So to to summarize, it's kind of uh, in a line where uh, find out, uh, be self-aware enough to understand what you like and what you're good at and what you don't like and what you're not good at. Bring in people that are smarter than you for the things that you need to outsource and uh, for the things that you are interested in uh, or in a way, not just interested, but the key metrics that your business depends on, know about them and know where to get them from and what to ask from the people that you outsource and hire and uh, let them deal with uh, all the other small nuances of getting the key metrics to you and uh, just knowing what you need to know and then playing around that. I think that's a very good summary. Yes. (laughs) So uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the business that you're currently building. So uh, you have a premium hair brand. Um, So, How did you start and what does it do? Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So I met James and he basically, he and his husband Masa came over to my apartment for dinner 
and started to tell me the story of the creation of these formulations. And basically James had worked in beauty specifically at Clairol for a really long time and was the creative resource manager, I guess. But he was essentially the guy that would book the models and arrange the shoots and figure all that out. And he was also the guy that would deal with the complaints when the models had their hair colored and then colored back and their hair would be completely fried. So he just felt like, well, why is there no products that really help when you have this kind of damage to your hair, um, nothing seems to really work. And he also just knew back then, this was, this was, you know, 10 years ago, even longer now. Um, he knew that there are certain ingredients, um, that you don't need, or you shouldn't have that are toxic. And this was before I think clean beauty really became a thing. Mm-hmm. So he had started on this path to figure out how to make these super hydrating formulas that would solve those hair issues that he was seeing. And he went to Masa's hometown, Masa's Japanese. Mm-hmm. So this is the connection to our ingredient. He, he would go to Masa's hometown, which is called Atsuchi in Northeastern Japan. And he was really blown away at how healthy everyone there is. They have the longest life expectancy in the world in Japan. And everyone just has this youthful glow. Um, And he was seeing, okay, what are they doing differently? And it's a few things. One thing is their diet clearly is very different than a Western diet um, and much healthier, I think. Um, But also they would take these ocean botanicals um, literally from the bay and they would dry them and grind them up and put them in their skincare and hair care, like a DIY. Wow. And so he started to sort of question, well, what is that? And what does it do? And why are you doing it? And started to do some research on these seaweeds and ocean botanicals and found this one particular strain of seaweed called Makabu that grows right there in the Bay by Masa's hometown Um, and started to experiment with what it could do for hair. And sure enough, what he found was that it basically acts like a sponge. It looks like a sponge. It acts like a sponge and it brings just intense hydration and moisture to your hair. What a story. Yeah. So that's how that ingredient came about. And really it's not something widely used at all here in the West. Um, But it took a long time of experimentation because what he found is that for most formulations and beauty, um, the chemists tend to use extracts, you know, which are the liquid uh, concentrated versions of the ingredient. Um, But for our ingredient, we found that if we actually use powder, a very fine powder, um, we can put more of the active ingredient in our formulations without it being heavy um, because the extracts, get, you know, they create a sort of heaviness, um, to the, to the formulations. And we wanted our formulations to be light so that you're giving hydration, but you're not giving that weight because otherwise your hair just gets almost greasy looking. If you're Mm -hmm. using very heavy moisturization, um, even though it might be moisturized, (laughs) it doesn't look its best. And so the idea was if we use these powders, Um, we can get more ingredient, more benefit, but without the weight. And sure enough, that's, that's what 
um, has happened. So that's what we do in our formulations is we use macabo powder, but then we supplement it with, you know, aloe and almond oil and other things that are extracts to enhance the performance. Mm. Very interesting. And so uh, how did the start of the business go? So you launched it as, uh, as you said, in uh, this year, basically, yeah. how did it go? Well, what well, was it, it about? Was, what it, was the launch about? Yeah, so we launched in February, it was actually February 13th at Fashion Week in New York City. So New York Fashion Week. And we were, we did two shows. Um, so we actually were, you know, in the audience in the show crammed into this small little room. And then it was just a few weeks later when everything was on lockdown. So it was a very surreal experience because we were like, wait a minute, <laughs> we were just doing a fashion show. So um, the good news is we launched as a very heavily oriented DTC business, direct to consumer business, mm -hmm. which means we had our website, our e-commerce site sorted out along with all the appropriate plugins that you need to launch an e-commerce business um, on Shopify. And we were able to just really focus in on that and grow our customer base and get that right. Um, the bummer was we had been talking to salons, which all had to close. So we had to put all those, those conversations on pause for several months. Um, and the reason that was disappointing, you know, for us is because our product is one of those that people really need to experience for themselves. And the salon is just a great way to do that, um, mm -hmm. to try the products, to smell the products, see the product, you know, have your stylist explain it to you um, and, and get that benefit um, of trying it before you commit to anything. Um, so we had to basically push that off until June when things started to open up again and we were able to re-engage with a couple of our salon partners and get that sorted out. We're now in uh, spoken wheel salons in the US. Um, there are eight nationwide and we're also in Dream Dry. We actually created co-branded products for them that launched in November. But it's been very hard to just generally engage the salon business because a lot of them, frankly, are just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. um, and now that we're mm -hmm. sitting here and it's, you know, end of December and there's basically a COVID resurgence here in the U.S., it's not been great. Um, you know, hopefully these businesses, not just salons, but other small businesses will be able to, you know, weather the storm and come out okay. But a lot of them, unfortunately, have had to reevaluate their business, close, close, you know, shut down permanently um, or do other pretty drastic measures, whether it's, you know, taking a long hiatus or changing their locations or changing their complete business model or whatever. Um, so that's been, that's been an ongoing challenge for sure. But I would say the business overall has done quite well, despite all that, I think, Part of the reason is we are very much on trend. You know, people are very tuned into self-care right now. And I get it because, you know, we're home, we're bored. You know, you want to do something to feel a little normal. Um, so you want to, you know, take care of yourself. So our products definitely fit into that uh, vein because we are salon quality, high performing products. 
you know, that, that you get at home. And then I think the idea of clean beauty has also become a bigger and bigger thing. It was, when we launched, it was almost like you have to be clean, but now I think consumers are really demanding it and much more aware and looking at the packaging and looking at the ingredients. And I think just it's because, you know, the overall health conversations we're having, people just want healthier products in and on their bodies, which I think is great. So that's helped us too, I think. So with the launch and uh, let's talk a little bit about the marketing strategy. So how many directions, let's say the strings of potential uh customer reach did you have so you said you had your e-commerce website yeah you planned engagements uh, and collaboration with salons uh, anything else like what 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 kind of other yeah. touches touch points with the clients did you build out so that to give a perspective of uh, what else is possible and what is valuable to do at the same time and uh, in in promoting a product business so i think you know you have to be on social I think any business that launches these days has to be on social. Now, what I would tell you is you don't have to be on every single social channel, but we're very active on social. So we're on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, Twitter. We have a TikTok account that I haven't quite figured out yet, but that's going to be next. Um, but I think having a presence on social and then also understanding the nuances between the channels and how to use them is, is super important. Um, you know, we are bootstrapped. We don't have investors. Uh, we are, we are the investors. So uh, for us, you know, finding channels that are efficient, affordable, you know, that you can kind of create the content is, is super helpful. So social is a must. On top of that, you can layer digital acquisition, which is basically paid advertising on those channels, Facebook, Instagram, Google search, SEO, and we've done that as well because that just kind of boosts your your presence and gets you new new users. Um, and you can kind of clone your current users. That's been helpful because you know when you launch a business, you might have an, a, a, a strong hypothesis of who your customer is going to be, but it's not until you actually start getting customers and seeing who they are, and then you can kind of clone them and try to find more people like them. And that's that's one of our strategies that we've done on digital. But beyond digital, like we do sampling, we have influencers um, posting about us fairly often. I, I do podcasts, <laughs> um, and there are a number of other channels, you know, that we that we try to employ just to like keep, uh, you know, create a presence. One of the best things we've done, and this is something I strongly encourage any any entrepreneurial business. Um, to think about is we've created partnerships with other like-minded brands mm. and it kind of came out because of COVID that we started doing it more aggressively, but it's been one of the silver linings for sure. And one of the best parts is that, you know, there are a number of other brands like us. There's in fact a skincare brand that's very similar philosophy that launched in February, just like we did. So um, you know, being able to partner together, whether it's, you know, writing content together, um, live streaming, um, doing a giveaway, you know, there's so many ways you can um, do things together. 
you know, we've included gift with purchases in our products with other brands and et cetera. So that has been a really good way to um, tap into each other's audiences, um, add value. You know, it's very efficient. You know, that's you're a, not. That's a beautiful idea. That's many, many entrepreneurs don't look into the direction <clears throat> of uh, partnerships as a foundation, one of the core foundations of uh, promoting a business. They focus mainly on like a direct reach out or paid ads or content writing. But partnerships are powerful, especially if you find yeah. a complementary complementary product that is uh, so in line with what you do. And uh, using the power of the two brands, you can get a lot done. Absolutely. So we have probably at this point a dozen or so partners mm. that we've worked with that have been great. And then there are always a few that don't pan out, you know what I mean, that they just don't deliver or they're just, they don't really kind of hold up their end of the bargain if you know if you know what I mean but um but I would say most of them there's about a dozen have been fantastic and we just keep expanding that network because that's been really like really fulfilling and yeah like you said it's just a really good way to expand your audience mm -hmm. um, can you can you share an idea of um from a an, a strategy perspective how do you look at thinking and identifying what can be that partnership? So I think it depends. Yeah. So in the case of the skincare brand, we did a couple of things. Well, let me back up. There's another brand, another skincare brand that we actually um, joined forces with. And we started doing sort of promoting each other in our blog posts. And we did a giveaway and it worked out so well that she ended up creating something called the, her, her, her brand is called Cirocell. Um, and it's a really uh, high performing serum. It's very expensive. It's premium like we are, but more, more premium than us, um, but very high performing. So similar to us, like it's clean and high performing, we're clean and high performing, you know, complimentary type things. And she ended up creating something called the Cirocell Atelier on her website, which is a separate tab of brands that you can shop from her site. So that's just a way, if you really want to take it further, you can go that far where she's put our brand. There's another brand called Bebo Therapies. There's a brand called Paige Novik. There's a brand called Veronique Gabay, who we partnered with as well. It's an amazing fragrance brand. And these are all part of her like almost curated storefront that lives within her e-commerce site. So she becomes like a distributor for your products as well. Yeah. So that's been interesting. Um, and then we also created a luxury gift box for the holidays where we reached out to a number of our partners and they all contributed a product and we put it together. And, you know, so there are things you can do that are just outside of just doing, you know, a sweepstakes or, um, just sort of, you know, the run of the mill stuff that, that start to get interesting, right? Because we're creating this unique box that you can't get anywhere else mm -hmm. of products. Um, and yeah, and I see us continuing to do those kinds of things for sure. Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned a thing that uh, 
when you test and you are in the business, uh, sometimes you come to a point where you realize that the target audience that you thought is your target really is more diverse or uh, a little bit uh, different. Uh, you shared uh, this idea when we last talked. Uh, can you share with the audience as well, like how, what was the discovery process of who your target audience is and how was it different to what you expected? Yeah, I think going into the launch, we sort of assumed that our target would be uh, an audience that's described as the Henry's, high earners, not rich yet. They tend to be like, 30-year-olds who have discretionary income, who are beauty explorers, who live in urban cities, you know, so they're in New York City and LA, that kind of thing. And we do have some of them, but I would say the much uh, more interesting targets that have emerged, there are probably two or three, but um, first of all, like older, older women have definitely appreciated our products more. And I think it's because, you know, your hair gets thinner, um, you color it, you know, you, it's, it just has more damage. So you, you need, you need it. Um, so there's that, that audience has definitely emerged as a very powerful audience, but I would also say two other targets. One was pregnant women because our products are clean when you get pregnant, you know, and it's, my kids are teenagers. So it's been a long time for me, but that's a time when you do evaluate what products you're using. And so that is a good entry point for us. And then the other target that's really been strong is men. So our products were intentionally gender neutral, but I don't really target men in our advertising. I mean, we will include men on our, on our Instagram feed and whatnot, but it, and the reason I don't really go after men in, in uh, advertising, it's they're harder to find from, you know, which men are the right ones to oh. find them, you know, um, cause it is a specific type of man who is willing to spend that kind of money on their grooming and their hair care. Um, but now we have about 40% of our customers are men Wow! and they find us and they love our products because they are, I don't know if, you know, if you've seen our packaging, they don't look feminine. They're very simple. Um, our scent is just a clean, fresh scent. It does not smell too perfumey, you know, too, too feminine. So, um, so that's where those, those things have emerged that I would not have known going into the business. But now that we know that, obviously, we redirect some of our efforts, whether it's the content we're making and we're including men in the content or it's um, cloning some of those customers um, to find more like them. Um, that's, that's what we've been doing. So, um, I think we're going to continue to learn along the way. Cause it's just, you know, that's what happens. Ever, ever developing process. Right. Exactly. So, uh, talking about, um, having, uh, growing a business, um, how do you manage to find balance between family, the business and self-care? I would say for me, balance is elusive and doesn't really exist because for me, it's more like blending and mashing it all together. Mm. Um, because, you know, when I was in a corporate job, it was a little easier to have a divide because I would go to the office you know, <laughs> and it was, it was a different type of situation. But now as an entrepreneur, 
I mean, I've been working from home for the last couple of years and my kids are also old enough to really understand, ask questions, be curious about what we're doing. So I do torture them. I drag my daughter to a beauty trade show uh, back in January before, before the lockdowns happened. And she had to work the booth, um, which she hated, but she did it. Um, and I've dragged my son um, to things as well. And um, so my strategy is kind of, you know, you have to just, I mean, you have to do what works for you. But for me, I, I just don't really have a divide between my personal life and my work life. In fact, uh, I work with many of my friends. Um, one of the people on my team is one of my friends from high school. My brother is involved in the business. Um, my husband's involved in the business. You know, so it, it, that for me works because my philosophy also at my age, I feel like I don't want to work with people I don't like. <laughs> And it's easier if they're your friends, because then you can kind of enjoy that part of your life too. Mm -hmm. And it all just mashes together. And also when we travel, you know, because like I get along so well with my business partner and his husband and my husband, and we've gone to Japan twice together. And even though they're business trips, it's super fun. I mean, it's not really a business. It doesn't feel like work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. How do you manage uh, to also like, uh, of course, work is a day-to-day -day flowing process that we devote majority of our time to. Um, how do you manage to find uh, time for like quality time with, uh, with your kids and with your husband and uh, your close relatives? Um, well, obviously now in COVID, we're all around each other all the time. So <laughs> uh, if anything, they're probably, you know, it's, it's too much of me. <laughs> um, so there's that, but, um, it's been much harder with friends, right? Cause we don't get to see them. So, I mean, obviously I'm doing what other people are doing, which is, you know, zoom catch-ups and trying to just stay connected with people. Um, that's tough. Um, so I think like everyone, I'm just really looking forward to when we can see people in person again. Mm-hmm. How you manage to do? Do you have uh, some like scheduled time for yourself, like for self care? Well, I think I said earlier, like I do yoga every morning, mm -hmm. and that's sort of what I try to do to, you know, keep myself sane. And then I also, you know, I'm fortunate we we're in the Berkshires, which is um, two hours north of New York City, and it's the country basically, you know. There's, there are woods around us. It's very peaceful. So we also try to get out and, you know, if the weather is cooperating, we'll go and do walks. Um, and there are a bunch of great nature hikes around us. And that's been really nice too, because, you know, like, like I said, kind of when you're an entrepreneur, you can make your own schedule. And there are times when I'm working at midnight, but there are times when during the middle of the day, I want to go for a walk, <laughs> you know, and you can do that. And so, that's kind of how I do it. I just try to, I try to get outside as much as we can today. It's like pouring rain. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't look very optimistic, but yesterday it was like 50 degrees and we went on a nice four mile walk. Um, so I think you just do the best you can. Mm, got you. Uh, let's look at the idea of, um, 
planning and setting goals for for the business and so is there a specific process of how you make decisions and set priorities on what you need to do i would say that if if you do this the work the hard work on the strategy and the values in the beginning those goals along the way become much much easier so when we set up the business again this is my background we spent a lot of time really defining our brand positioning and our values and um our behavior and what we agree with and what we don't and those kinds of things because then when it's like okay um what are we going to launch it becomes very easy it's you know and and it also led us to create the Masami Institute which we set up as a foundation to support ocean research in northeast japan because our our one of our values was like look if we take from the earth we have to give back that's that's part of our philosophy so we have to figure out how to do that so that's you know so i think when i see um brands or startups struggling and again i'm now putting on my hat as a consultant when i was working with startups many of them hadn't done that work you know they launched a product not a brand so they launched a product that they thought was great and the product may have been amazing it could've been a software product an ad tech product whatever um but they they had gotten themselves into a bit of a confusion because the messaging was all over the place because they hadn't done the work up front to really define what it is what's it for what's the benefit what are the values I also make people go through an exercise of defining an archetype which helps with your brand voice and and really laying all that out because once you have that like I said then everything else those goals and decisions become much easier along the way and then your goals are much more like okay I want to get into x amount of retailers or I want to expand in these country you know they're they're tactic type mm-hmm. goals Can you tell uh, for for the listeners on how to properly um let's see putting into practice the ideas of building the building out and talking through the values the mission statement the vision um how do you keep it as practical as possible and not as abstract as i believe many can perceive that process to be so uh, like name like for, for many people i believe they don't understand the real value in in values and mission and vision that's why they don't start with it because it feels so abstract and not down to earth and practical how do you keep it for yourself um a practical thing that y- you use it even though that is like the top level of or everything mm-hmm. it still is a foundation for everything how do you manage to balance that feeling inside and to uh, make that part of the process as practical and as like foundational as it can be. Yeah, that's a really good question because you're right. I think that is exactly why some entrepreneurs don't bother doing it because it feels like fluff. But I think the reality is um it's absolutely not fluff because like I said if you really understand your archetype, your enemy that impacts your brand voice um big time and your messaging and how you communicate with your customers but the most practical advice i can give is we use a template called pbec mm. product brand experience and community 
So when you define a value, look at it through those four lenses. How does it translate into your product? How does it translate into your brand? How does it translate into the experience and then the community? And usually when you do that, it, it, it results in some very tangible outcomes. So for example, if, if diversity is a really strong value for your company and it's something that, you know, it's not just like, oh, of course you have to have diversity, but it's like, no, this is one of the beliefs that we're built upon. Then your community has to reflect diversity from the bottom up, not just the top down. Your product has to di reflect diversity in the sense of you have to actually make your product work for lots of people and you have to test it on lots of people. And you can't, you know what I mean? There's, it, it leads you to make some decisions. And like for us, that was, that's a really important value. So when we think of our innovation, one of the things we're looking at is a beard balm, which you might like, um, because again, diversity, we want to do something for men. If we say that we're a gender neutral brand and we have a lot of male customers, then we want to live into that and actually create a product that pays that off, not just lip service. So it, I do think going through that exercise really helps um, define, make your values real and helps you translate them into actions. Um, but I think that's really important because those are the things that should never change, right? Your values, um, your business may change. You may have to pivot. You may have challenges or other influences from the outside, you know, that are impacting you. But if you're true to your values, you should be able to then figure out how to translate those things into whatever challenge you're facing, if that makes sense. That was a wonderful example. And as you, as you said, like uh, values such, I would say for many such abstract value as diversity, for example, it can mean so many things. People can perceive it in many ways, depending on their experience. Yet when you practically put it through that model and you actually start thinking, how does it um, manifest in your community? How does it manifest in your product? How does it manifest in the experience that people uh, receive from your brand? I believe that's, uh, that's one of the most powerful things that really connects practically the values and what you're doing where you just draw that line of how do they play out in in the environment that's that's a wonderful technique i believe that for many uh this can help to uh rethink the step of values and actually put in practice uh what about uh the mission and the vision how do you um basically i know that it is like uh a um, how to call it a thing that you always see in front of you and you're walking towards it and you can find different ways uh, around the obstacles that come up. Uh, but in, in practice, uh, many write the mission and the vision and just let it lay on the shelf forever without coming back to it. How do you practically stay in tune with your mission and your vision? I mean, I would say that that's something that a lot of your customers want to know because these days transparency is so critical to being an authentic brand. And if 
you should not hide your vision and mission. So this is a mistake I think a lot of brands make is they lead with their product and they want to just get right into the nuts and bolts. But the product was most likely developed coming out of a bigger vision or a frustration or a need in the market or whatever. So even on like your website, we've coached a a few clients who have done this actually, um, where you could go on their site and see almost like a manifesto of what they believe, which really connects you with, okay, this is why this exists. This is, this is why they're doing what they're doing. And then coming out of that, it's almost like the same thing I said before, like your product may actually change. You know, you're, you may have to pivot, but your mission, if your mission was to solve X or whatever, um, you know, that, that really shouldn't, shouldn't change very much. Um, so I find that actually making it into like a mantra, uh, a manifesto really helps um, solidify it. And then we also have this thing we do, whereas we call the North Star, which is basically putting it on a t-shirt. Hmm. Um, if you if you had to sum it up in a phrase that was a rallying cry, what would it be? And it just helps the internal organization wrap their head around it. And it helps people externally understand what you're trying to do. And um, that you know, it's almost like a tagline. Like, so for us on Masami, we say when somebody kind of pushes me to have it in a few words, I always say it's the ultimate and botanically hydrated hair because that means it's clean because it's botanical hydration is natural. Um, It means it's high performing. It's grounding it in the category we're in, you know, so um you know, you have to find your, your way of sort of creating that, that stake in the ground. But I think that's all connected. This is where I think also a lot of founders don't understand all these pieces have to work together. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the story arc, the chapters of the story, the title of the book, <laughs> they all have to kind of sync up together to tell a bigger story. And oftentimes I find that they don't, it's like, the founder wants to tell one story, but then there's a different story on the side that, you know, has not connected to the bigger story, you know, and so you do have to do the work, I think, to connect those dots so that people can digest it. Oh, I believe that's a great idea about uh, perceiving your branding as a wholesome book that you would love to read. And when you open up, you would understand every single part is interconnected. And it's like a story that has an opening and introduction and, uh, and an ending and everything that you would expect from a good read. That's what a brand should be. And starting from that, building up your business where everything else will fall in line because it isn't about the products it's about the brand and why people should choose the product in the first place exactly Mm, very nice some golden nuggets of ideas for people (laughs) starting out super uh let's look at the idea of uh planning uh far ahead and uh, for for your life and business do you have like an ideal life scenario or how far ahead are you planning Um, I don't know if I could say I have an ideal life scenario, although 
you know, my husband and I have done a, a fair amount of work to sort of orchestrate our life and our lifestyle to the way we want it. So we right now are where we were fairly bi-coastal. We have a house in Palm Springs and then we're on the East Coast and that is something we enjoy. I would love to travel more, you know, and, and um, I mean, who wouldn't love a villa in Italy, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think what I also recognize about myself and my own motivation is that I like being productive. I like working. I'm not somebody who would do well having nothing to do every day. So it is about figuring out that balance. If I know I said balance is elusive, but it is figuring that out to try to, you know, uh, enjoy the, the moment and the journey as much as possible, I think. Um, cause I think now we're at a point where we really like, you know, our, our lifestyle. Um, so I don't know if it would change so much down the road, mm. I think. So uh, you, you've reached, you, you've reached a level in your life that is so satisfying to you that this is the level where you would be happy to stay if you stay in it for as long as you wish. I think so, yeah. I think um, as long as we're creating things that are of value, you know, and, and one, you know, our thing is, you know, we want to create products that are good for you and good for the world. That's part of our mission. So, um, as long as we feel we're doing that and it's satisfying and we're enjoying it. And yeah, like I, I, I don't see that changing really. Interesting. Uh, what about in business? How far ahead in business do you plan? Um, it's been so hard to think, I mean, it, years out, like it used to be with our clients. We used to work on five-year plans, which to now sounds like a joke to me. <laughs> I think it's like five month plans honestly, okay. because I just don't think you can really predict <laughs> what is going to happen. So I think you need some game planning scenarios though, like, so that if, you know, if part of your business does implode or doesn't translate into the result you wanted, that you have a backup to, okay, now we can go figure out this other thing. So I do think you have to be thinking through sort of different scenarios on the mm -hmm. business. Um, and we have goals, of course, like, so I always try to do the bigger goals that I want to accomplish for the year. And we have revenue projections and all that. But then I also try to do weekly goals that help me. And I share them with my team. They can do what they want with them, but it's more like, here's what I'm focused on this week. Mm -hmm because it just helps me prioritize my own stuff because that's one of the challenges I think as an entrepreneur is you just get so busy and you can literally do everything and you could end up spending all your time in the weeds if you're not careful. Mm, definitely. So, you know, you, you kind of do have to force yourself sometimes to pull your head up and look around and see what else there is to do. Um, but I find setting the weekly goals helps me with that. Cause if I say this week, I want to focus on, you know, alternative distribution, then I have to do something to pay that off, mm. you know? Um, yeah. Got you. What helps you to uh, actually plan the week? And um, can you 
name something that helps you to be productive, like maybe some software or journaling or whatnot that you use for I mean, following I'm, I'm old school in the sense of I like lists. I just make myself to-do lists and then I can get to check things off. I like, I like scratching things off the list. It's very satisfying. Um, but we also use Slack, which I find is a very useful tool. We have a, a you know, a broader uh, year marketing calendar that we use that we plug things in that kind of gives us the bigger picture. Like, so there, there are definitely things you can do for sure along the way. I mean, some people will actually kind of write uh, their own sort of priority plans. Um, there's different, I, I, for me, I don't like to get, it's, it's almost like with, you know, the finance and the analytics, I just don't need too, too much. Cause when it starts to feel like writing the plan is work in and of itself, then, you know, it, it's, it's daunting. Got you. Uh, what about uh, in the business? Do you use some project management systems or anything like that to keep the team productive and in tune and so forth? Well, we're small. So at this point, not really. I mean, we have a lot of different Excel spreadsheets for every possible topic. Um, so that's kind of how we manage different things, whether it's, you know, keeping track of our salon partnerships or our retail partnership, you know, we've got, we've got those all kind of like laid out, but um, I don't think we're at the point yet where we need, you know, to, to deal with sort of a formal project management software process, you know? Mm -hmm. Got you. Um, can you name uh, like, monthly, weekly, and daily activities that are pivotal to your business growth currently? Like something that you do maybe once a month, once a week, or once a day? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say daily is I'm always looking at our sales and analytics to see what's happening at any minute, you know, given time. Um, monthly, it's, it's, a, it's more about uh, product development, I would say, because that just happens on a much slower pace. So, you know, figuring that out um, along the way. And then I would say weekly, it's more about distribution. You know, what partners are we in? Because um, that also is, you know, there's a process there. It doesn't happen overnight, you know. Um, but that's kind of my priorities, I suppose. Uh, what about like um, if we look at analytics and sales, this is uh, historical data that you use for, let's say, future optimization. Um, but do you have any like maybe doing outreach or some marketing activities or something like that on a daily basis? Um, well, on a daily basis, you know, we're posting on social media every single day for sure. And then, you know, on a weekly basis, I'd say we're looking at the performance of our ads because um, that's one of those things that if you do look at that every day, you'll go crazy because it needs a little time. You know, you, you can't optimize it every single day or it won't learn. So that's more of a weekly thing. Um, yeah. And then I think there are other other activities in marketing, whether it's, you know, the partnerships. We try to actually do giveaways monthly. Um, and we do, my, my partner has gotten really good at live streaming. So we actually have a couple different live streaming platforms we do, and we do those weekly. Oh, cool. Uh, 
Uh, where, yeah, do you find, where do you find driving value is uh, for live streaming goes uh, super well? On what platform? Well, we have probably three platforms that we utilize the most. One is called TalkShop Live. It's kind of a modern QVC. It's actually, I would recommend for anyone who's got a product, um, it's a great platform to use because it doesn't cost anything for a brand. You just pay a percent of your <laughs> sales to them, hmm. but um, there's no, you know, retainer monthly fee, which is great. Um, <clears throat> and that's been a really uh, useful platform. And then we're also on one called spin live. That one is an app and it's really targeted towards influencers who want to do videos about your products. Um, but we also live stream on it. And then the third is Amazon live. You know, we're sold on Amazon in the U.S., Canada, and Singapore, um, and we just started utilizing their live stream platform, which is which is great Twitch. as well. So, is it Twitch or or Amazon Live has a separate platform as well? They have their own platform. Oh, interesting. <clears throat> okay, super. Um, can you give some ideas for people out there because you do have a huge experience in uh, advertising? Um, what should a product company and then a service company um, look at from a perspective of growing a business and what percentage of the budget should go to marketing activities from your perspective? What, what is even, let's look at it this yeah. way, minimum and optimal. It's, it depends on the category you're in. It depends on how competitive it is. It depends on the channels you're looking at. I mean, for a small business like ours, we are putting almost all of our revenue back into either R&D or, or marketing. So in that case, the percent is really high because it's pretty much you know, everything. But we are also in a position where as founders, we don't take salaries, we don't have overhead, we don't have rent. Um, so that's where our money goes. Now, other people don't have that, you know, they have a different model or they're, or, or they're taking, you know, they're taking salaries out of the business or they're, they have other, they have other expenses that will dictate that. But when you're, when you're young, I would say as much as you can put into marketing, do it because that's where you're going to get the return on growing your customer base, um, you know, increasing your sales. I mean, you have to obviously understand your ROIs to know where to put the money because you don't want to be throwing it away. But assuming you've got some decent ROIs, um, <clears throat> I would say try to figure out how to put as much of your budget into marketing in year one and year two as possible. Mm, very interesting advice. Uh, what would you say uh, for an average that you saw in, uh, in the cup, uh, maybe the corporate clients, um, what percentage uh, do you believe they invested into marketing? Corporate clients, I would say it's somewhere in the 10% range. You know, it's, it's um, not a huge, huge amount. But, you know, again, you think of the infrastructure that they deal with. And a lot of those companies, you know, just have massive amounts of um you know, they have factories, they have employees, yeah, they, they have overhead and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so basically, we're looking at uh, if corporates spend uh, 10 to 15 percent on average on their advertising. So definitely a solopreneur or an entrepreneur should be looking at investing much more so that they get mm-hmm. out there and be, uh, be able to be visible and build their presence, build their brand and uh, be in front of people. Because um, I believe that many uh, try to grow their business through organic means and it's it's good and uh, there there is so much value to that and it uh, also demands a lot of time yet we have to understand that every single business out there that is rapidly growing is utilizing paid marketing right right yeah and uh, that is one of the key drivers of uh, of growth and if we are not utilizing it then we are missing out on a lot of growth opportunity agree Right. So uh, let's look at uh, the part of actually that when a business is growing, we get more and more to do's. And uh, let's touch upon the topic of outsourcing and getting help. Uh, what kind of tips can you give to entrepreneurs and solopreneurs in the, in the sphere of outsourcing the tasks? So first of all, I would say, figure out exactly what you want to outsource. That's number one, you know, what things are critical and what things you really do need help with. And then, um, you know, look within your own network, because usually it's not that hard to find somebody who's, you know, social media guru or whatever. But if you don't have it, there are so many interesting and good places you can find talent these days, whether it's Fiverr. Um, or, or just, there's just a, a bunch of those types of sites where you can find good people. I think the key though, in my, in my experience is having a very tight brief. So if, if you don't explain exactly what you want, um, or what you're hoping to accomplish, it's really going to be hard for those people to come in and do it. Um, so if you just say, I want digital advertising, but you don't explain what that means, there are lots of flavors of digital advertising out there and people will interpret it and it may or may not be what you want. So um, I think, you know, do a little bit of work to make the brief as clear and tight as possible before you bring somebody in. What about the challenge where you can get into where you believe that making the brief take so much time that you rather do it yourself. Where do you find the balance between uh, that perception and the reality? I mean, I would say if it's something that you're going to need on an ongoing basis, like let's take our social media example where you're, you know, posting every day and it's just not sustainable for you to be doing that. Take the time to do the brief. You know what I mean? Um, It's worth it because, you know, you're looking at, the, t- the time moving forward. Now, if it's something where it's more like a one-time task and by the time you do the brief, you've figured it out anyway, then obviously it's not going to be worth bringing somebody in. But I mean, I would try to bring people in for those roles that truly are like very specialized skills, whether it's coding. I mean, we've had to bring in a coder to tweak our website. Um, you know, there are certain things that you just can't do. Mm. And so, you know, do, yeah. Do you have any experience with hiring VAs? Um, I looked into it, but we ultimately decided to bring in interns instead. So what I don't. What does that mean have, for you? What's that? 
what does that mean for you? For, for so, the- you know, just getting, getting sort of college students who can um, help on various areas that I probably would have had a VA help with, um, whether it's content creation or social, um, or just helping us, you know, keep track of some of our spreadsheets and making sure we're filling out all the information and, you know, um, interesting. Uh, where do you uh, like, this is a, an interesting perspective because I believe that many don't look in that direction yet. There's so much, uh, potential in actually finding, uh, students, uh, can you give some advice on how uh, listeners can go along this route of actually finding uh, that kind of people to help them? There are some um, there are some apps and software now that do it. There's one called Acadium that you can find a student, um, and they're not necessarily students. It could be somebody looking to make a career change and wanting to get experience in an area. Um, but you know, in my case, I'm lucky that I have college age kids. And so I've been able to kind of mine that network and find people that are, you know, great and interested and helpful and want to do it. Um, what do you look at in a, in a, uh, in a college student, uh, in terms of maybe you look at their faculty that they finished or what do you look at in before hiring? Well, I think, for me, the most important thing is what they're interested in, because, um, you know, like my son trying to get him involved in the hair care business is not going to happen. You know, um, he's just, he's a gamer, you know, he, he doesn't care about beauty products whatsoever. So I think part of it is just, do they have a natural interest and, um, desire to learn whether it's marketing, they're studying marketing. So they want to do more of that. So part of it is that, and part of it is helping them figure out how to enhance their skills. Hmm. So if, if they are a marketing student and they want to get a little content creation experience that could help them on their resume, then it's like, great. So, so that's what I've tried to do is find people that, you know, if, if I have somebody now who's helping me with content and with social and she's a marketing student, you know, that was her interest. So it, it aligns and she's very interested in beauty and hair care. And so that works. Paid intern or or how does that work? Yeah, we do paid internships um, just because I feel like it's hard to not pay them. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I would say if you can, even minimum wage, just, you know, I think they appreciate that. They need a little spending money too. Got you. That's that's wonderful advice. Um, what would you say uh, in in the realms of um, hiring could be the first best hire for a business? If we, when we, I should say, not if, but when we are able to make some hires, I think for us it'll be a junior analyst or a like a marketing manager. Mm. Can you uh, can you give some insight in terms of what does it mean for the business to have such kind of position in the game? Yeah, I mean, I'm keen to get that junior analyst because there's so much insight that can be gleaned from the business and somebody really digging into Google Analytics and Facebook Analytics and understanding all the different nuances of what's going on. 
that it really is kind of a full-time job to do that. I don't have time to dig as deep into it as I would want. So having somebody that could uncover some of those insights on the target, help us get smarter about where we're spending our money, um, I think could be a very valuable role. Um, and then the marketing manager for me is more about getting somebody to help execute, you know, all the different pieces. Cause as we're growing, you know, you'll have a partner with a retailer and they need a certain, you know, point of sale material or sign, you know, you just need somebody to be creating a lot of different mm -hmm. things. Um, and that would be helpful too. Got you. Uh, talking about the buyer's journey, what do you believe is the most important part of it? and how to maximize conversion on that step? Well, what we've found for us is that it takes about seven times of seeing our product or hearing about our product before somebody will convert. So you, you've proved that theory in practice for yourself. Well, what we've done is we've tracked a couple of our customers and, and done some post surveys mm -hmm. to understand that journey. And that's what we found. So I can't say conclusively mm -hmm. it's every single person, but um, I do know that, you know, Shopify will show you this person has come to the site 10 times. And we do have, sometimes we see that somebody will come to the site a dozen times before they purchase or more. It's always confusing to me because I feel like our product really isn't that complicated. It's shampoo and conditioner, <laughs> styling products, you know, they're not, it's not like such a considered purchase that you would think, but I think I think it's underestimating what people, you know, the typical process people go through. Um, and so I think if you understand that, you know, for most people, and again, it depends on the category you're in, but for most people, it's a multi-touch point process. Then I think you can start to rationalize why you need to, you know, for me at least, Pinterest is a really good channel because it gets people in the discovery mode, aware of our product, they may not convert right away, but it might move them along the journey. Mm -hmm. It might push them into another place where we can retarget them. Then they might see us on Facebook. Then they might hear a podcast. Then they might follow us on Instagram. And before you know it, you know, they will eventually convert. So it, it really is about um, that full ecosystem and thinking that through, because I think otherwise, you know, if you're just focused on Instagram, for example, you're just, you're just going to miss out um, on, on really being able to capture that person. Got you. So the, co the core idea is, uh, as you said, also connected deeply to the first point, the brand and uh, the, the brand is the base of the touch points and the clearer the brand message is the the better those touch points sink in and the the closer the client gets to actually interacting with you and purchasing beautiful uh, let's look at the idea of um, self-development and self-awareness um, it, it when we are building a business the level of self-awareness that we need ever is ever growing the better we need to understand our behaviors our thought patterns our emotional patterns especially when we start working with other people um, can you name uh, a tool or a system that helped you to provide a massive boost to your self-awareness hmm 
a tool or a system? Uh, no, I actually can't. I think in my case, it, it's just experience, you know, and, and being in different roles where I could really see what I, oh, I don't, I'm not enjoying this or, oh, this is fun. I want to do more of that. Um, I do think one of the things I've learned along my career and my advertising career is, is that if you're in a situation or a role where you're not enjoying it or you're not getting what you want out of it or the culture you're in is toxic. I've been in a couple of those. Don't wait around and hope it gets better. It's usually not going to get better. Get out and do something else and it'll be a learning experience and chalk it up to that. And chances are you'll move forward that way. Um, I've seen way too many people get stuck. Mm you know, get stuck in, in jobs they don't like or not good at or just not fulfilling. And I think there's this fear of change, right, of the unknown. But I, I can tell you it's worth staying if if you're not happy. Got you. Um, would you um, do you have any questions that you would recommend uh, for entrepreneurs to ask themselves? Uh, to be more aware and more mindful about where they are and what they're doing? I mean, I think one of the big questions is what makes you tick in terms of your, where do you derive your, your happiness and motivation from, you know, for me, like I said, I, I like being productive. I know that about myself. I've, I've, you know, learn that about myself. I think sometimes people think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to just retire on the beach? And for me, I'm like, ooh, I, I would do that for a couple of days and then I'd get completely bored. So if you kind of know what makes you tick um, and you do a little bit of that soul searching and you know when you're happiest, I mean, reflect back on the moments in your life when you've been at your best and you've been at the happiest and figure out what was it about those situations that did that. Um, Some people really like working in social environments and being around other people. And that's where they get their energy. I'm more of an introvert, you know, so I don't need that as much. Um, but I think if you understand that, that will set you up to make yourself successful um, mm -hmm. in, in whatever you're doing. Got you. Now, uh, what about, this is a bit, uh, if, if I may ask, a bit intimate question uh, in a sense, uh, Do you have anything uh, in the terms of understanding yourself that uh, there's an idea that, oh, I, I want to know that about myself, but I still don't? Is, is there a thing about your, um, your life, uh, your, your patterns or anything else where you ask, you ask yourself a question that I would have or I want to know more about uh, why is, is this happening or, so, or more about myself in that direction? Um, I think that's true for a lot of people. I would say for myself, I think I'm super self-aware um, and I don't really have that burning question of, you know, what would I do if this was the situation or anything like that? But um I, I don't, I think there are a lot of people that are still trying to figure it out. I mean, part of it is I'm an older entrepreneur, right? So I launched a business after I'd kind of gone through the journey of figuring out what I liked and what I didn't like and, you know, what, where I got my excitement and motivation and I was able to then apply that. 
I think if you're a younger entrepreneur, it's much harder because you're learning that along the way. And it can get confusing because you don't always know what is the thing that's giving you the angst. Is it, you know, what element of the job, what element, you know? Um, so I, I, I can't really help with that because like I said, I've had the benefit of the years of experience to sort that out. Got you. Now, I was also touching yesterday about a point that uh, we um, we focus a lot about our mental health. Like we, fo- as entrepreneurs, we focus on self development, on mindset, and all those questions. Uh, many focus also on the physical health, yet um, we rarely touch the topic of emotional health. And if we look socially, no one touches that topic barely. Um, for you, from your personal experience, um, how emotional health uh, is important for an entrepreneur and how to deal with it and to potentially um, maybe you have some experience that you can share in that direction as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important topic. Um, there was recently a Monica Lewinsky story. I can't remember what publication, maybe it was Vanity Fair. I'm not sure where she talked about with COVID that emotional health was the one thing that we're not dealing with as a society. And it was actually, I thought, very, um, you know, very, very astute, um, because she's right. Um, And, you know, even coming out of COVID, you know, the uh, ramifications for students, um, and how they're going to feel when they don't feel that they are as capable or have learned what they needed to learn. And all, you know, so there are all sorts of questions around this emotional health piece, um, for sure. I would say, um, I have the benefit of having a daughter who's very tuned into that. Um, and she has done a lot of her own research and, now she's taking psych classes. Um, so, you know, when you're able to sort of talk through things and explore what's going on, um, and if you have kids, you know, that's going to happen, <laughs> um, then that, that def- definitely makes it easier. I think the problem is not talking about it, right? So I, I would say the, oh, here, I'll, I'll give a little bit, piece of advice to founders, you know, I'm part of Betaworks, which is a building community in New York City. Um, they created during COVID what they called circles, which were groups of like six, six founders, six people. And with the intent of really just being able to share what's going on, not work-wise, but more, you know, emotional stresses and, and be able to kind of support each other. And, That's not unique. I think there are a bunch of founder communities where those types of groups are popping up now, where founders are really trying to help each other deal with some of the things that you go through as a founder, right? That can feel very isolating, can feel very lonely sometimes, but to have another founder say, oh my God, this is what I did and how I dealt with it and um, can be very helpful. So I would suggest if anyone's struggling to, to try to reach out and find one of those founder groups There are groups on Facebook, by the way. There are a bunch of female founder communities. One's called Paler, where they do a similar thing. Um, And and you can find a really great level of support that, frankly, you can't really get from your family and friends because they don't always understand what you're going through. 
Definitely. That's, that's one of the biggest points I'm also point, pointing out. Like in our life, uh, many entrepreneurs find themselves in a position where the, in their surrounding, they have basically no one they can really communicate to. And especially when we not just talk about um, our personal issues, that's, uh, that's a whole story that we usually keep to ourselves. Uh, even talking about business and pro, like having constructive conversations about uh, business-related uh, aspects that we barely can communicate with uh, our surrounding, like our family, our friends, and people might just not even understand what the hell are you doing and what you're engaged into. And uh, th that's why having that support network and having that community can mean a lot. And uh, not just in, in terms of relief and better emotional state, but actually progressing and moving forward and finding that support for growth. Talking about uh, external support and surrounding, uh, there's this uh, quote by Jim Ron where your income is the average of the five closest friends. Um, for you, how is and maybe was the surrounding important for the growth and success in life? Um, I mean, there's some truth to that statement, right? Because you do tend to surround yourself with people that are probably more like you than not like you. And, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, as I mentioned, I went to school in the Midwest at, at Indiana University. Um, I would say, you know, I really started to get a more diverse understanding of the world in New York City, um, which is very helpful. Um, the beauty of living in New York is, you know, you can live next to a billionaire and you can also live next to somebody who's you know struggling in a studio apartment trying to make ends meet and um and i think it's it's about embracing those different perspectives and different experiences um and trying to find people from different walks of life and i would i i feel like my husband and i have a really interesting diverse group of friends now from all kinds of backgrounds, not just advertising people. Um, and that's actually been a really rewarding part of our lives now. Um, whether it's, you know, our neighbor um, who is, you know, living in the country or um, somebody we met through a, a friend who's completely, you know, lives in a, you know, and on an island, we have some good friends who literally live on an island. Um, so I think that's how, yeah, that's, that's, but I think it's just, it's beyond just the economic diversity. It's also just finding people with very different lifestyles and perspectives too. Mm -hmm. Got you. Can you give any additional advice? Like, as you mentioned, um, Facebook groups uh, can be a big place to find people with like-minded people for support. Do you have any additional ideas where people can actually find that surrounding and build it? Um, well, as I mentioned, there's a bunch of female founder groups. Um, we're on a marketplace called Doe. They've been great for female founders. There's another one called the W Marketplace. Um, Paler is another one. Um, I have a harder time recommending for guys because most of the stuff I'm in is female oriented. Um, but I do think it's, it's probably not that hard. If you start searching, you could probably find some, you know, entrepreneurial groups, um, that, that could kind of sure. meet your needs. 
Yeah. So um, wrapping all this uh, conversation up, we've talked about a, an interesting journey of building up a personal brand, uh, the importance and some strategies about uh, putting out a product to the world, uh, shared your story. I love the story of how uh, your brand Masami came together and the idea behind uh, the process that your partner went through to find out uh, that uh, this let's say let's call it secret ingredient that goes into uh, into your product that's uh, I, I love this story and the importance of story for branding and using values as a foundation uh, for building up any business and practically tuning it with the pbc model right was it the mm-hmm. pbc model so uh there are a lot of value-driven ideas here. I believe that uh, our listeners uh, will use that in the, uh, the process of forming their business as well in 2021. So the last uh, point I would love you to do is what kind of advice can you give to listeners on what they can do right now to make the most out of 2021 in their business? So I think the well, a couple things. The, the first thing would be um, set your goals. We talked about that earlier, but know what you want to accomplish next year. Second thing is build a network. If you don't have one already, find a network of peers, advisors, mentors. They can be younger than you. They can be older than you, but I think you need that. And that will really help you moving forward. Um, give you a sounding board to bounce things off of, give you a support system. And then I guess my last piece of advice is just just learn to say no to the things that are sucking you dry and that are not giving you any kind of fulfillment. Um, a lot of us, myself included, are yes people. And I tend to offer up my time and my you know, thoughts and et cetera. And I've had to learn this the hard way is like sometimes you just can't do that and you have to be a little more selfish um so that would be my other piece of advice going into next year is think of yourself that's that's like the definition of healthy egoism right where you take care of yourself first and then take care of others exactly but a lot of us don't do that i mean it took me a really 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 long time and and i still don't do that i mean i had signed myself up for a webinar where i was presenting this is like a month ago and then i'm I'm like, why did I agree to this? Like, this is not even something I enjoy or I want to do. And I was so mad at myself for agreeing to do this thing. Um, And of course I did it anyway and it was fine, but it's just was a reminder for me to say like, okay, I cannot say yes to these things moving forward. I have to be a bit more selfish. (laughs) Wonderful. So Lynn, thank you for being with us today. It was a value packed episode. For everyone who wants to find out more about what Lynn is doing about her brand Masami and uh, everything else about her business, you will find the description uh, below under the episode. Uh, if you have any questions uh, to, to Lynn, uh, I believe she's open up to every single conversation that uh, you can bring sure. up. And uh, yeah, I w- thank you, Lynn, for uh, joining you. us today. Um, I wish everyone a happy continuance uh, of the holiday season and a productive start to 2021. So yeah, thank you for tuning in, Lynn. Thank you for having me.